The Spin-Off Podcast Network. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited and, of course, past performance does not guarantee future returns. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. Coming Home is proudly supported by Kiwi Bank, the bank that's making Kiwi better off. If you have recently returned to Aotearoa and are looking for opportunities in life and business, a new start or a safe place to re-establish roots, Kiwi Bank is here for you. Find out more at kiwibank.co.nz. In this series, we've been meeting the New Zealanders who are coming home. How many Kiwis are we talking about here? How many people do you think there might be? 80,000 plus. And it's a big deal. Because for the past few decades, we've seen thousands of skilled people leave our shores. Companies are being urged to prepare for a labour squeeze due to the country's continual brain drain. More than 32,000 left for Australia last year. And this week, we're looking at the push and pull factors that brought them home. It's messy out there. It's so messy out there. Even what you see on the news, which I'm guessing from here, looks completely crazy. Today, President Trump blamed the World Health Organization for getting every aspect of the pandemic wrong and threatened to withhold funding from the organization before seemingly backtracking. Doesn't fully communicate what it's like to live somewhere where the whole place is in a mess system failure. It is dire, and there was a record number of deaths today. The world decided to become a very uncertain place. The mayor of Portland, Oregon, has been tear-gassed at a protest. You were seeing the cracks in society and the polarisation and the divisiveness of the government. That follows reports that the PM has ordered his Brexit team to find ways to get around the protocol. I don't miss Brexit. I don't miss the fact that a lot of my friends in hospitality are having a terrible, terrible time. When the Black Lives Matter protests started, it was really unclear, like, how that was going to pan out. You know, some of the protests got difficult, and so we had curfews coming through on our phone. There were military helicopters circling around your house all day, loud enough to give you, like, a consistent low-grade headache. It got quite scary. It just feels like everything is breaking down. There was once this really strong magnetic pull of the big cities and countries overseas, and it's like the polarity of that magnetism has reversed lately. Particularly in 2020, the world has been getting quite scary and strange. You know, the elections of Bolsonaro, Trump, the rise of Brexit and nationalism. Now, bear in mind, that's all before we even get onto the main event. Well, I mean, <laughs> there was this thing called COVID-19. That's Marnie Turnbull, who we met in episode one. 
She's the one who's really into blockchain. She felt pretty at home in San Francisco. But as the pandemic broke out in the States, things started to change. And it wasn't just the way that the US handled COVID-19, although that obviously wasn't great. It was also the position the pandemic put her in. I got laid off because they were just culling jobs. And also my visa was linked to that company. So as soon as you're cut from a job, boom, you lose all health insurance as well. I never thought I would be back in New Zealand in 2020. No way. But it's messy out there. It's so messy out there. So for Marnie, it definitely was more of a push factor that got her heading home. But for others, there was also this pull. In the time that I lived in the US, when I first moved there, people had not heard of New Zealand at all. I would sometimes get asked if it was in Europe. This is Rachel Morris, the journalist who headed up HuffPost's digital magazine, Highline. She spoke to us from her hotel where she's been doing the last few days of her quarantine. She told us about her first few years overseas and how when she told people she was from New Zealand, she got a very familiar reaction. If people had heard of anything, it was sheep or Lord of the Rings. Now it's just completely turned into this trendy country. It's funny how quickly that's swung around. I mean, it's probably been 10 or 15 years, but having been so one note, the sheep jokes and then adding Lord of the Rings, you know, you get Flight of the Concords and Lord and Jacinda Ardern and suddenly it feels like New Zealand has got all this texture to it and all of those things are kind of cool. And at the same time, the rest of the world, all the kind of cachet and attraction it has has been sort of fading away a bit. Yeah, and also I think just we've got, like, better going out culture now. The internet's helped connect us to the world. We're less conservative. All of it together has meant that we are, you know, like a nice place to be. So the world's getting weirder and New Zealand's getting trendier, but still it's not quite so black and white. Coming home was never going to be an easy decision for Rachel. You know, I'd been living in the US for 15-ish years at that point. Pretty much her whole adult life. I mean, remember, when she left New Zealand, she didn't know what she wanted to do or be. She trained to be a journalist in New York. She first worked as one in Vietnam. So returning to New Zealand felt like a really big professional challenge. I had a job that probably doesn't quite exist in the same form in New Zealand. So leaving was definitely not going to be a snap decision. Yeah, so for me, it was a really long, drawn-out process I had been coming back into New Zealand really regularly for about five or six years, in part for sort of family reasons. After a while, I just started to feel like I actually need to pick one of these places or the other to live in. So what helped Rachel make the final call? Well, it was a bit of push and a bit of pull. Rachel ended up being offered the editor's job at North and South magazine. That's a really, really interesting gig. It doesn't come up often. The previous editor, Virginia Larson, had been in the role for, I think, around a decade. There really aren't a lot of positions like it in New Zealand, and so it felt really serendipitous that it arrived just as probably one of the the most interesting candidates you can imagine in the world was ready and looking. When the North and South thing came up, I think it was the first time where I thought, okay, this is like something I would be really excited about and I could move back and I wouldn't sort of have to figure out the question of what would I do in New Zealand? Like this would be something I would love to do. 
That pull of the opportunity to work at North and South magazine was so strong. And the things that had been keeping Rachel overseas were slowly loosening their grip. Part of the tug of staying in the US was friends who in a pandemic you can't see and thinking about it. Where did I ultimately want to live? You know, did I want to be an old person in the United States or in New Zealand? And especially now looking at it, uh, New Zealand like wins that question pretty pretty conclusively. So the pandemic and the just general chaos of 2020 gave people a final push, but life as a New Zealander in other countries is just not that simple. And all the rush of getting overseas and all the craziness of organising our lives and the kids and so on, I never really prepared myself for just how strange and difficult it is living somewhere, even in another Western country where you're actually pretty familiar with everything. But it was really pretty hard on the family. It's hard to make friends as an adult. And speaking with Polly Fryer, she found the same. Yeah, we found it quite tough. It takes longer to settle than you think. Like, and I found America was quite an administrative, heavy place. I feel like there was... <laughs> that is such an understatement. I'm just going, flashing back to filling out enrolment forms for school and what, like, there were questions about when the kids first, you know, ate on their own. Yes, and, yes, uh, when they first crawled. Yeah. yeah. I was like, I have no idea. I just made it up. I know, and the list of rules, like, no running in the playground, no open-toed shoes, like, yeah, like, it was really administratively heavy and not logical, no. not straightforward, and not designed for you to succeed in fulfilling the application. It was basically how hard could we make this? Mm. I think it's really important to point out that the stakes are so different if you move a bit later in life. Mm. You know, I think if you're moving in your early 20s, it's exciting, you're going for opportunity and experiences, and if it doesn't work out, you just cut and run home and that's not a big deal. For you and for a lot of people like you, moving in your 30s, you're giving up so much, the level of risk, the level of commitment, the kind of conversations you need to have with your partner and your children. It's just a wholly different experience, right? Yeah, and I mean, we went for Joel's work in LA. It was hard, I guess, for me without sounding too poor me. It was hard because it wasn't my thing that we were going over for. So I was giving up my friends, my family, my community back home to go and chase this dream of Joel's. And... When we spoke to Polly, she said that even though LA was a dream opportunity for her, her husband Damien was in a similar situation to me. After we'd been there six months, we found out that categorically Damien wasn't going to be able to practice as a physical therapist, which is what they call it in the States there. So just to remind you, that's Damien's profession. And he'd been working as a physio in Auckland for years. I think he was quite lonely. He'd come yeah. from a really... A uh, busy life here in Auckland with a lot of friends and family that he's known for a long time. Being the Damien of our family, you know, it is hard. It's really hard and you do kind of lose that sense of self a bit. Even though it was hard, we were really committed and we, after about 10 months, we got to the place where we were actually really excited about the idea of staying on for another year in the States. And Polly and her family felt much the same. Even when the pandemic broke out in the States, they were really committed and they didn't hop on the first plane back like we did. When it first happened, we didn't really think about leaving, to be honest. Mm. Like, we kind of were just getting on with it and being locked down like everyone else. And then I sort of saw that you had gone. I wasn't ready to leave Netflix because I'm really passionate about it. And 
And so it took a couple of months, probably about eight, we were eight weeks into lockdown. I was like on a phone call and one of my team members was dialing in from the East Coast. And I was like, oh, wow, how come you're working from there? And they said, well, Netflix basically say, you know, as long as you're getting the job done, freedom and responsibility, you can work from wherever within reason. And I was like, oh. So we were like, well, if we can work remotely for Netflix, yeah. if we're going to be locked up here, we'd much rather be freer in New Zealand. This crazy work environment and these policies that they have at Netflix has been very fortuitous for Polly because it's meant she could come home without much impact on her career. She's been working at home for the past few months and from where we're sitting now, it looks like that's what she's going to be doing for the foreseeable future. But for others, the impact of COVID on the job market in the States made their lives totally untenable. So, yes, not much potential unless you wanted to just chill and maybe overstay <laughs> or keep just living in an extraordinarily expensive city. So staying in the US really wasn't an option for Marnie. The pandemic cost her her job, her visa, her access to health care. But even if she did have the option to stay, the city that she'd once been so excited about, you know, that had felt like home to her, it had changed, or at least the way that she perceived it had. That was increasingly losing relevance as people were departing and flowing out into the regions. So, yeah, seeing a big uh, metamorphosis of what, what San Francisco is or what New York is or what, yeah, what these main hubs represent and who are living in them now. This is what's so interesting to me in terms of how the world might change out the back of this is that there's been a sense from so many of our big companies that you've got to have all these people in a room able to face to face so that they can achieve the kind of big audacious goals that these companies have. You know, and that's why you've seen Apple and Facebook build these like multi-billion dollar campuses. Those campuses are all empty now. And, you know, while you might really like these kind of big grandiose buildings and having everyone in a room, you don't need it. And you can, you know, carry on this work from anywhere. Yeah, I mean, I've noticed a lot more people working from home <laughs> here at the spin-off since COVID. And guess what? The work's still getting done. And I know we're talking about people kind of working maybe a few kilometres from the physical building. But in bigger terms, when you think about someone like Polly, where all of Netflix are being allowed to work remotely, well, there's still shows popping up on my Netflix. If you can actually work for a global giant, but do it from Auckland and have all of the benefits of the lifestyle kind of things that, that exist in New Zealand, then, you know, you might see that sort of quite radically transforming the sense of the kinds of people who choose to live here and then the economic, cultural, creative opportunities that flow out of that. Now I wanted to check in again with Julia Anna Nehanea because her reasons for coming back to New Zealand are quite interesting. So she returned to New Zealand to co-found a social enterprise to bring more Pacifica people into tech. It's called People for People, and I'll let Julia explain the rest. So People for People is on a mission to strengthen digital empowerment in Aotearoa. Digital empowerment really looks at growing human potential through the use of technology. And so what we're trying to do is achieve digital equity and really trying to do our part in ensuring that no one is left behind. And that means everything from providing access to hardware, like actual computers. Refurbish old devices, so having them being able to be um, donated and be sent out and being given to children in Eden, South Auckland. That's something that's a huge need because that's just a starting point. 
but also paving the way for people to get involved with the tech industry professionally. Building up employment pathways, building up opportunities, looking at scholarships, internships, apprenticeships. There's an abundance of talent and yet there's a shortage of opportunities and those opportunities only get given generally to those that are placed to be able to see them as well. Like some of them are posted out on, you know, like LinkedIn and it's like, well, <laughs> Ha-ha, hello, <laughs> you know. Right, because if you don't have a computer at home, you're probably going to miss those opportunities. I remember when I was researching her for the original story I wrote, I found this lonely Facebook post that she'd written asking if anyone knew any other people who were Pacifica working in technology and there were no reactions to it and this one troll reply saying that they, they thought that Bill Gates was Tongan or something like that. And that just really crystallised for me what a lonely and isolating experience it must have been for Julia. So I asked her about that post. Take it as like a cry for help or a cry for community. Here I am existing in this world and I am yearning to find connection and not being sure of how to find it, if it exists, who else is out there. And it's never to say that Pacific people aren't working in technology. The, what I was trying to touch on is that we can't see each other and let alone can we find each other. Well, what can I do? If I can't find others, how are others that will come after me going to find one another? And that's really where I wanted to come home and, and make a difference in this space, allow others to benefit from this industry that is one of our like second largest exporters of New Zealand now. And it's an industry that's not getting any smaller <laughs> anytime soon. And how can we change the narrative, how can we change the story and, and what can I do to drive connection and collaboration and community? She really wanted to know how she could go from being this sort of one almost aberrant person in the industry to part of a, a movement. Not only that, but she saw that some of the issues which have bedeviled tech over the past few decades were actually things that Pacifica culture, with its emphasis on the collective, on the community and how everyone contributes to the whole, were really well-placed to solve. A really simple example is just the siloed nature or, or, for example, some of the very individualistic practices that you need somebody to sit in the middle of to weave them all together to move in harmony of one another. Because you can't be running a race with like 10 different people running in different directions, not talking to one another, never sitting down and actually speaking to one another, sharing what are their pain points, their barriers, what do they need to overcome, how can they complement and actually collaborate with one another to get to the end goal. You just can't, you can't operate like that. And you think about like a relationship-based culture. This is an incredible cultural value and trait and skill set that inherently and naturally lends itself to an industry who needs more people like this and actually collaborate with one another to get to the end goal. Oh man, I mean we just came back just because it was felt like the comfy thing to do, you know, and here's Julia coming back, a woman on a mission, you know, she's got this inner voice getting louder that she wants to do something positive and invest your energy and skills back into New Zealand and the people of Aotearoa and how inspirational and sort of embarrassing for me for just coming home and laying on the couch. <laughs> We've all got our roles to play, Jane. Yours was to build a lovely podcast network. But you're right, Julia just has this real sense of mission, as you say. You know, if she gets to execute that plan, New Zealand changes. There is a whole bunch of people who are excluded from the system, excluded from opportunity, who get let in and 
you know, that, that starts to pay dividends 5, 10, 15 years down the line and can really transform opportunities for a ton of people. Interestingly, that's similar to what our next guest has set out to do. I'm Peter Gordon. I'm a restaurateur, chef and food writer. So Peter Gordon, he might be New Zealand's most famous and most decorated international chef. You'll remember a few years ago the hype around molecular gastronomy, which is all the kind of crazy freezing and... Uh, it's like a Heston Blumenthal's forte, that, isn't it? Yeah, but, but Peter Gordon like kind of flew the plane on it. He's one of the original sort of founding fathers of that as a discipline. He's, he's been out there in London, one of the most famous chefs in one of the most famous food cities in the world, and suddenly he's back in Auckland and back for good. Where I am is where I wanted to be, but it's certainly not how I anticipated it happening. He'd been in London for 31 years, which is a very, very long time when you think about it. So mentally I was preparing myself for a big change after 31 years. I'd come to the realisation that actually I think it's about time I move back to New Zealand rather than being someone living in London who comes to Auckland four to six times a year. I thought maybe it's time to change. So I settled on the fact that I would move here in August this year and live here. But the pandemic carried things along. And it just happened to happen in March instead of August. Peter's reasons for coming home, his motivation were pretty similar to Julia's in the sense that he's got some purpose back here. He's not just come back to move into the cruisy New Zealand life. He's got things to do. I was trying to think of what would be something good and meaningful that I could do over the next sort of 10 years of my career. And I thought it would be good if communities got back together and people learned to cook again and we shared the kai around the table. So that was sort of formulating in my head as the future. And back in March and April, the world seemed very gloomy. It became obvious that restaurants were suffering, but then we spoke to quite a few friends who were producers, you know, farmers and producers and growers, and we thought, actually, they're having a terrible time because the places they sell to, the restaurants are all shut, and we thought we need to come up with something to help them, and what could that be? And we thought, well, why don't we look at this idea of a retail space with a cooking school? Because in lockdown, we also, as we all discovered, Everyone was having to cook, which was really nice, and some people's attempts were better than others. And you'd see postings, you think, oh my goodness, you do need to turn the oven on before you put your bread in the oven, that, you know, that sort of thing. And we thought teaching people how to cook, even basics, like almost home economics, would be a really positive way and a subtle way to get people buying local produce and cooking it at home. We began to talk to friends and said, if we did a cooking school, would you come along? What would you want to learn? And we had people saying, look, I don't even know how to roast a chicken or I, I was never shown how to make a risotto or I don't know how to make a pie. So we thought, let's try and find a way to do all this together. And so along with his partner, Alistair Carruthers, Peter came back to New Zealand and established Homeland. And Homeland does like a whole lot. I think they describe it as a food embassy for Aotearoa and the Pacific. It's a place where people can come and they can learn to cook, they can eat in the restaurant. And ultimately, it's a place that will take the best New Zealand produce out to the world. It's just so exciting running a kitchen with a team of people and getting some really fantastic food on the plate, working with producers, celebrating the producers themselves. You can come in and experience the produce by cooking with it, buying it and eating it. So we think that's a win-win for producers. So obviously, it's about eating food, yum, but also about sharing the diverse stories and cultures that go with each dish. One of our mottos is manakitanga for everybody from everywhere. And we want to celebrate people's homelands, 
We'll be working with migrant communities and iwi and Pacifica, trying to understand their food cultures and try and find a way to share that to the wider public. And for Peter, this is the project of a lifetime. Homeland to me is the culmination of all that's come before me that I've done. And I'm really happy, honestly, really, truly happy to be back here in New Zealand. And I haven't had a single day since I got back in March thinking, oh, I just want to get out of here. I've come home. Man, it feels good to know that these people are coming back. In April, May, where it really felt like there was no floor, like anything was on the table in terms of global outcomes, because obviously you had the health crisis and then the parallel economic one. And I remember it was actually when I started writing this story and, you know, it was the depths of winter and it had been this really tough time, but, you know, talking to Julia, hearing about what Peter was getting up to, you're like, actually, not only can we make it out of this, but we might actually, you know, if we handle this right, we might make it out better. We're talking about people who have made a commitment to set themselves up abroad. In Peter's case, he'd been there for such a very, very long time. It just astounds me that they come home then with this energy to do more back here and bring everything they've learned and everything they've experienced and share it out with everyone and not just come back and go, this is a a nice time, I'm going to relax back in New Zealand. I just find that really very, very admirable. It does feel like the country, the rational response would be to just lay it all out for them. Yeah. How can we help? And this is what we'll get into in the next episode. It really didn't work out that way for everyone. So next week we're going to dig a little deeper into those bumpy landings, into what it was like for everyone to come home touch down on the tarmac, get off the plane, and then face their new reality. And there are new challenges ahead for these returnees, and we'll be looking at those next week. Coming Home was brought to you by The Spin-Off and Kiwi Bank. It was presented by me, Jane Yee. And me, Duncan Grieve. It was produced, edited, and mixed by Claire Crofton. Thanks to RNZ for allowing us to use the archive news audio we've included in this episode. And shout out to Tina Tiller and Josie Adams for recording and helping us with interviews. And to Alice Webladall and Sherry Zhang. And to Lucy Raymer, of course, for booking our interviewees. She's an organisational genius. And of course, if you're liking this series, don't forget to subscribe to get the next one and tell all your friends. Kia ora e te iwi, te Ahe Butler here, podcast manager at The Spin-Off. If you enjoy listening to our podcasts, consider supporting our mahi by signing up to become a Spin-Off member at thespinoff.co.nz slash donate. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.